It's so great to finally be here, um, to be able to talk from, from, from this platform. Um, like, it, it's hard to even remember what I was thinking um, a year and a half ago almost when John a- asked me if I would be interested in coming to Cornwall and to, to St. Austell, and I had to get on my phone and Google to see where that even was. Um, but this is a really great place, and I'm really glad to be here. And and that worship set. Thank you, worship team. Can we just talk about that for a second? That uh, that song. I, I, I really enjoy worshiping, and I, I I've, God speaks a lot uh, through the words that we sing, and we ha- it's such a great opportunity to be able to give back to him in that way. But there was a moment during that song, Because of Your Love, that my heart just kind of stopped. And we were singing those words that Jesus died for our sin, that he was broken for our shame, all because of his love. Uh, we, we talk a lot in, in churches about the power of Jesus' name and the power of the cross and the power of his blood. and That, that cross, uh, I, was, I was looking at that for a while, and you know, that's, that's very artistically done, um, and it's very nice. But, but the cross itself isn't a beautiful thing. The cross itself is a hideous thing. It's full of all kinds of rough angles, and when, when it's being built, it's not considered a masterpiece. It's just uh, it, the only criteria that it has to meet is, can this piece of wood hold up a man for hours, for, for days? Can it, can it hold up a man writhing in agony for days? And Jesus looked at that cross in all of its hideous glory and said, yeah, yeah that's, that's what I want. And the reason that he wanted it, he considered it a joy was because of his love. It's just, it, it's incredible. And that's the only reason that I would fly 3,500 miles to, to stand here in, in Cornwall, which is really gorgeous. But you know, it's not my home, but it is where I'm called. And the reason that I can come is because of his love. And the reason that I hope all of you are here, even if you don't know it yet, is because he loves you enough that he has a message for you. And so I, I'm honored to be able to deliver that message this morning. Um, and if you'll pray with me, I'll get started. Father, I pray that you would take my mouth, because it's all I have to offer this morning. I pray that whatever words come out of my mouth would not be my own, but that you would speak through me. You who created me would now use me and speak to me and through me to show me your love. And to show these people your love. Prepare their hearts and let us with open hearts and open ears hear from you this morning. Amen. So as we dig into this morning's message, um, I just, just let me tell you a story. There was a, a baby born in Germany in a rough patch. Well, I'm pretty sure that all of German history is actually a rough patch. <laughs> but... Uh, a young housewife and her husband, who he was a salesman and an engineer. I'm not sure how those jobs go together. Um, but they had high expectations for their child. Uh, they expected this child to do great things. And even immediately out of the womb, they were disappointed. His mother said, his mother said that his head was too big. And his grandmother said that he was too fat. Just, just when he was born. Um, and the boy grew up and he was fairly clever. But, he was really socially awkward. He didn't have any friends. Um, and 
he didn't do very well in school. The school had different passions than what he had, and they just didn't line up. And he really liked classical music and playing the violin. Um, and so later, when he went when he went to school, he did really poorly. Um, the school was focused on language and order, and he didn't find his place there. And so he, he was Jewish, actually, and so he tried to find his place be, doing religious things. Um, so he, uh, his family weren't practicing Jews, but he was for a while. He tried to do all, keep all the food commandments, and he gave up bacon, the poor kid. And uh, he found out that this religious practice wasn't his place either. And that left him disappointed. Eventually, his parents, I think his parents gave up on him. His parents moved to Italy, but they left him there to finish his schooling. Uh, and the, I told you, he was, he was clever. He went to the doctor, and he convinced this doctor uh, to sign him an excuse out of school, saying that he was too mentally exhausted. He, he wasn't actually sick, but he, he was sick of this school, and so he left. Um, his, he showed up on his parents' doorstep, and I can't even imagine what his parents must have been thinking when he showed up, saying, yeah, Mom and Dad, I just quit school because it just made my head hurt. Um, and uh, his friends, their family, they all had to have been really disappointed in this guy, right? They had to have been. He wasn't what they expected. He wasn't what they hoped he would be. Except I actually do know there was one guy who, who saw something different in him. They had a 21-year-old family, uh, family tutor. He was a family friend. He was a tutor. He was a scholar. And he saw this kid, and I don't know, they just got on. He saw something different in him. And he chose to invest in this young man and thought he was worth developing. And so he brought him books. He brought him books on science and philosophy, things that weren't taught in his school. And the kid took to them, and they had conversations, and he grew. And that young man saw something different in the boy than what everybody else saw. Arguably, it is only because this this 21-year-old guy who invested in this kid, who had too big of a head, who was too fat, who had no friends, who got bad grades in school, who played sick to drop out. It's arguably only because of this 21-year-old guy that that boy grew up into Albert Einstein, the quintessential thinker of the 20th century. That's, That's shocking. And I love stories like that, and there are dozens of them. There are dozens of stories like that, but I love them um, because I see myself in them. I was just talking to someone this week, and we were having a conversation, and I remembered um, a piece of my own story. Uh, I was growing up, and I, I went to things like youth group, and, and it was really disappointing for me because the guy was teaching, our youth pastor was teaching things that uh, I really already knew. I'm being honest, and I wasn't really friends with anyone there, and I was socially aloof, and I didn't really want to be friends with anyone there. But my youth pastor did something brilliant. Uh, He pulled me aside. He pulled me aside, and he told me that he saw something in me. He saw that I wasn't getting anything out of my youth group, uh, but he also saw something that he valued and he nurtured. He taught me what it meant to be a leader, he, just, he may never know the impact that he had on my life, just in a few words. And I'm, I'm no Einstein, don't get me wrong. Uh, but 
we both were invested in by someone who saw something in us that they valued. And that changed the course of my life dramatically. And I'm so fortunate because I know that not everyone has that same sort of experience. I, I shudder to think how many people walk through life, how many people I've walked past and discounted because they struck me as awkward or dull or from that part of town or from that family. I, I, I wonder sometimes how many times I've been discounted because I'm too short or I have a funny voice or my nose is too big um, or because I said something rude or because I said something stupid. How about, how about you? Have you... Have you ever been discounted? Have you ever been ignored or overlooked? Have you ever been told you weren't good enough? Or even made to feel like you weren't good enough? I I think God wants to challenge us on this. I, I believe that one of the things God desires from us when we move into relationship with him, is to see people differently, to see people the way that he sees people. And, and so it's with that groundwork that I want to dig into our pa- uh, Bible passage this morning. and see. I just want to see what the Bible has to say on this kind of discussion. So if you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, um, I'm going to be in John chapter 1, 43 through 50, 51. Um, if you don't know where that is, it's the fourth book in the New Testament, so it's about two-thirds of the way through. You'll uh, get, go through a whole bunch of really funny names, and then you'll get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Or, or you could just use the table of cod teds. That's what I would do. Um, so uh, just to sort of set the scene, Jesus has just started calling his disciples, the people that would dedicate their lives to following after him. And uh, starting in verse 43... It says that Jesus, one day, he just up and decided to go to, to go to a place called Galilee. And he found a guy named Philip. And he said to Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from a place called Bethsaida, and the city of Andrew and Peter, the two people that Jesus had already called. So he's up to three followers, if you're counting. And Philip went to his buddy Nathaniel, and he said to him, we have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The Bible's a little sparse on details here. Um, I, I think what we have, though, is really striking. Somehow, this man had such a strong impact on complete strangers that all he had to say was, follow me, and they gave up everything that they'd ever aspired to, to follow after him. These were people that knew their Bible, they knew the Torah, they knew what was expected, and they saw that in this man. And this guy that Philip went to talk to, Nathaniel, he almost never got that chance. Because when he heard the word Nazareth, that set him off. He, Nazareth had a reputation, you see. It was the bad part of town. It was the place that you didn't want to come from and you didn't want to go to. And the people there, they were poor, they were criminals, it was anything that came out of Nazareth was sure to be polluted. But, and you know, Nathaniel said, Nazareth, what good could ever come out of Nazareth? And, and Philip, Philip's pretty clever here. He says, he says, come and see. He says, come and see. Come check it out for yourself. And 
So this is where it gets kind of interesting. Um, it gets actually kind of weird because Nathaniel is walking down the road towards Jesus with Philip uh, at his side, and Jesus shouts from a distance, Behold, here is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, What? I haven't met you. I don't know you. And so he asks him, Listen, uh, how do you how do you know me? How do you why do you think that I have no deceit in me? Who do you, who are you? And and Jesus answers him in a pretty cryptic way here. Actually, he says, "Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Like is this code or something? I saw you under the fig tree. That's it." Like, this is your credentials for calling someone to be a disciple of you? Imagine if we chose, like, our service providers this way. Like, yeah, I saw you mowing your lawn the other day, and I just think you'd make a really great accountant. Will you be my accountant? (laughs) It's it's absurd. But Jesus did. He said, I saw you under the fig tree, um, and I could see then that you had no deceit in you, that you were an honest man. So what are we missing? What is this idea of the fig tree, what's going on here. It, uh, the fig tree was, was the place in the back of a person's garden, away from the community, away from the house, where they would go and they would devote themselves to prayer and meditation. This was the place where Nathaniel was silent before God. No one could have seen him. And Jesus says he knows that he's an honest Jew. Because he sees something in him, something that isn't on display, that isn't out in the open. But he sees something worth cherishing. And he draws it out into the light. That's powerful stuff. But but Jesus has an advantage here, doesn't he? Because the reason that Nathaniel was so astounded was because Jesus knew something that only the Son of God could have known. Uh, Jesus knew what was in Nathaniel's heart, that he was an honest man. Because he could hear the contents of his prayer. Uh, Jesus, Jesus knows things that only God could know. Um, so I could, I could end here and I could say we can either be like Nathaniel, forming negative impressions of people without even meeting them. Um, or we can be like Jesus and see what's really inside of people. And I can say that and we can all go back and get some tea and coffee. And you could, you could tell me that was a very nice message. Uh, but... At, at worst, you would leave here completely dismissing it. And at best, you would leave here really frustrated. Because, because what are you supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to see what only God can see? And so, I want to spend the rest of the message just looking uh, really practically at what this looks like. How do we learn to see people as God sees them? And I think the key uh, found in found in John fifteen twelve is this command, uh, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to love people as I have loved you. And I think it's fair to say that the reason that Jesus could see people clearly is because he loved them. I, that, that's why he could look at fishermen and say, I want you to build my church. He could look at a woman spilling perfume all over his feet and see the beauty in it. He could look, look at somebody like me who's inexcusably imperfect and say, yeah, I want you to stand up and preach my word. It's, he, can, he can see people because he loves them. 
And so we're supposed to love people the way that Jesus loved us. And I think it's interesting. The, the, word that we, the way that we use the word love gets kind of sloppy, I think, doesn't it? Like, I love my, I love my mother, and I love pasties. But it's not the same thing, right? <laughs> like, it, it, we're talking about two different things. So I was reading, I'm always looking for a good definition of love, and I was reading this book the other day. And it really struck me, and I think that it plays into this morning's message, so I'll just read you a passage. Um, and just to catch you up, there are two young men, uh, a guy named Lori and a guy named Pug. And uh, so they're talking about love, and they're actually both slaves. They've been torn from their family. Um, and Pug has his eye on this slave girl, and she's, like, she's head over heels with him. Do you guys use that phrase over here, head over heels? I don't understand it, but I'll use it. Head over heels with him. Uh, but, but Pug's a little reticent, because he loved a girl back when he was at home. Um, and he might have feelings for this, for this new girl, but he's still a part of him will always love the girl that he knows he'll never see again. And so Lori's trying to help him understand his emotions, and he gives him three definitions of love. Uh, let me read this to you. Sometimes, sometimes we want love so much we're not choosy about who we love. Other times... We make love such a pure and noble thing that no poor human can ever meet our vision. But for the most part, love is a recognition, an opportunity to say, there's something about you I cherish. It doesn't entail marriage or even physical love. There's love of parents, love of a city or a nation, love of life and love of people, all different, but all love. There's the rec- a recognition, an opportunity to say, "There's something in you I cherish." I, I love I, I love that. I'm I'm personally very familiar with all three of those types of love. Um, I'm sure you are too. It, if you reflect on your life, I'm sure that you've seen places where you've done all three of those things. But how does this apply to people? I think that how do, how do, how did Jesus first love us? Is the question. And I think it's possible for us to just set the bar really low and love them, love them because we have to. Love them uh, because we need to. Um, we, can, we can love them because we aren't choosy about who we love. But that's a, sort of, that's a sort of I have to kind of love. And I don't think that's how Jesus first loved us. He didn't do it because he had to do it. Colossians 1 says that he came down and died for us because of the joy set before him. The joy was redeeming you and me. The joy was restoring you and me. The joy was reconciling us to him and us to one another. That's not an I have to kind of love, is it? And so... We have a danger of overcompensating, of making love too noble of a thing, of saying that we're happy to love people as long as they're Christians, or as long as they look like us, or as long as they smell like us, or act like us. We're happy to love them as long as they aren't living in sin, as long as they aren't liars, as long as they aren't violent, I'll love them. As long as they're nice to me, I'll love them. 
And the thing of that is, we expect people to be perfect sometimes. Or at least, we expect them to be good. And in doing so, we make our love such a noble thing that no poor human can ever hope to achieve it. When we all intuitively know that Jesus loved everyone. Uh, but, but do we? Like, do we live that out? Maybe a simple test is, how many open seats do you walk past when you get on the train before you find one that you can settle with? How many people do you walk past? How many people have I walked past? Because I I didn't like what I saw. Jesus didn't even walk past the lepers. He didn't even walk past the people that were literally falling apart. He stopped because he loved them, because he chose to cherish something in them. Am I there? No, but I I hope to be. And I'm afraid that sometimes I set the bar too high. Sometimes I expect people to be more than they are, and maybe you do too. So what is love? Like this character Lori said, most of the time, love is a recognition It's an opportunity to say, there's something in you that I cherish. And I'm holding on to that. It's it's encouraging that. It's investing in the virtue that you see. And always bringing it to the front of your mind. Making that the thought that you go to when you think of people. Friends, don't you see that this is how your father loves you? I've asked the question, how could... And I'm sure you have too. Like, how could a perfect God love someone like me? How could the creator of the universe love someone like me? And I've been on my knees and I've asked God, haven't you seen what I've done? Don't don't you know that I'm not good enough? But God's love's overwhelming. Because the truth is, he sees everything that I've done. He does know that I'm not good enough. God sees far more evil in me than you ever will. He, if we could sit down and we could talk for days on end of me recounting every sin that I can think of, every wrong thing, every mistake I've ever made that I can, I can think of, and I can tell it all to you, and I'll make your skin crawl, and you'll never want to see me again. And God sees all of that. But, but don't you think when Nathaniel was strolling up the street that Jesus could see his sin? If Jesus could see his prayers, then I'm sure that Jesus could see that he wasn't perfect. And yet, he chose to say, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I bet Jesus knew that he was bad-mouthing his hometown just a moment ago. I bet he knew that he was talking back on uh, Nazareth, or, yeah, uh, just a moment ago. And yet, he chose to know Nathaniel as a true and honest man. And in the same way, God looks at my heart and he sees all of the worst in me. And yet, he chooses to cherish something in me. He sees something in me worth having and he cherishes it. If, if you're not a Christian today, if, if this is your first time in a church Um, or maybe your hundredth time in a church, but you've never quite been there, then you should know this terrifying truth about the God that I serve. 
He knows everything that you've ever done and every word that you've ever said. He sees your heart and he knows every thought that you've ever had. Yet don't, do not be afraid because he sees your heart. He sees the good in you, even if you don't see it yourself. He sees what you could be. And he will always choose to recognize the good and to cherish it. He'll choose to see past the obvious and forgive sins and transform you every single time into something greater. So do not leave this place without having a conversation with someone. Talk to me or talk to John or Becky or anyone. But that can be yours. A father whose love is unconditional because he sees all the worst stuff and he's already chosen to love you anyway. So let me echo Philip's words to Nathaniel when he wasn't sure. You know, come and see. Just, just come and see. But where does that leave us as Christians? I think we know. You see, It's easy for us to stop at a superficial level and see the bad in people. But we'll never love them until we choose to stop, to slow down, and to see them. This third type of love, a recognition, an opportunity to say, there's something about you that I cherish. Albert Einstein's tutor did this for him. He saw a young man struggling to find his place in the world was frustrating his peers and his teachers and his parents and he stopped and recognized something else in the boy he chose to take an opportunity to say that he cherished that and he fed into it and brought that out in the light and that changed the world and my youth pastor did this for me he saw an arrogant isolated annoying kid and instead of trying to train me out of my bad habits which he could have done which many people tried to do. He recognized something good in me. And he took an opportunity to say that he cherished it. And it changed my life. And don't you see, friends, that it always does? Love always transforms. When we choose to look past the rubbish, past the challenges, past the unlovable characteristics, and cherish what is good, as Jesus did for us, then, then what can that do to the world we live in? How can that change the? How can that change St. Austell? How can that change Cornwall? How can that change the people that you know and desperately love? And all it takes is that recognition, that slowing down and seeing what's good in people, and cherishing that and nurturing that, in, in spite of all the superficial bad.